and welcome to the All Tricky Retold podcast. I'm Anna McQuarrie and I'm a history curator with Museums and Galleries Edinburgh. We are embarking on an exciting project looking into our entire collection, finding out amazing stories that have been hidden and are just waiting to be told. These bite-sized podcasts will be conversations, interviews and general good chat that will help tell a little bit more about the stories behind Edinburgh, our Old Riki. I'm joined by the Old Riki Retold project manager, Nico Tayak, and this podcast is about some letters with a royal connection, giving us an insight to life in Edinburgh during the 17th and 18th centuries. This was a period of huge change in the city, both socially, scientifically and intellectually. So much change, in fact, that we can't cover it all here today. Now, Nico really loves this period in history and has been researching these letters, so let's get started. Yeah, so these two letters were amazing finds in our in our office, in fact. So they weren't actually in, in the museum store where the rest of the collections should be. Um, one letter was found quite accidentally by one of our, our colleagues in a filing cabinet, uh, and the other letter was in the store. So normally, we, we, you know, as, as a museum, we would put things away in stores and looked after. Uh, for some reason, one of these letters just got separated and put away in our reference library. The two letters together are quite astonishing. The first one on first sight seems to be a letter by King Charles II to his Presbyterian minister back in Edinburgh. And the second letter is written over a hundred years later by a chap called David Dalrymple, who went on become, to become the third baronet of Hales, of uh, New Hales House in Musselburgh, uh, just around the corner. So they're both found uh, separately, but uh, are part of the same same set of objects. And together, the two documents really do show uh, an amazing snapshot into the political life of Edinburgh from the 1650s right through to the 1760s. They show all the political upheavals, the, the, the periods of the civil wars, uh, the period when Charles II was in exile and the Commonwealth of Oliver Cromwell was, was in power. And then they move on to show how Edinburgh had become the centre of the Scottish Enlightenment with all these great thinkers writing, painting, building, discovering all sorts of amazing and new things. So it, they really are an astonishing combination of, of objects. And it's the ex brilliant example of what we're trying to do with this project, uh, this collections project, is trying to uncover all the hidden stories in the collection and these two letters alone just have grown arms and legs. As, as more we've done research on them, the more we find new stories, we find new links. So, Nico, this must have been pretty exciting, realising you've got something kind of quite old related to significant people just there in your hands. I mean, we weren't really aware that we had this object in the collection. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the older letter of the two? On, on first sight, I, I, I couldn't believe what we had, to be honest. It was uh, a colleague of ours who, who'd found it and knew that um, anything old goes generally in my direction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I was actually on leave at the time. I was looking after uh, my son and I got it through uh, a photo on, on my phone and I couldn't believe it. It looked like a letter from Charles II. It's signed Charles R at the end. and At the very top, he's written the date 5th of August 1652. It's written from Saint-Germain, the Chateau de Saint-Germain in, uh, in France, outside Paris. So this was immediately ringing alarm bells with me. Um, this was where Charles II was in exile after the Battle of Worcester in 1651. The royalist cause of the Civil War had collapsed and Charles was living in exile at the court of Louis XIV in Paris. 
So it's associated to some pretty important events in kind of European history. It is. It it really is. Yeah. Um. It's it's an astonishing thing. So the letter itself, uh, the content of the letter, he's writing to um his minister back in Edinburgh, uh, a Presbyterian minister, which is quite interesting. Um. I should say at this point that the the whole kind of political religious history of this time is fantastically complicated oh, yeah. um it really is um <laughs> uh, charles was um not terribly sympathetic to the scottish presbyterian cause that's a nice way of putting it <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, i think on his deathbed he actually converted to catholicism i think um and he certainly had leanings towards Arminianism, which was a form of Protestant worship, which had quite a few elements taken from um, the Catholic Church, which was a big no-no by the, for the Scottish Presbyterian Church. So the fact that he's writing to a Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh is, is quite interesting in itself. And it's, it's a very affectionate letter. He obviously is either being very politically savvy or is genuinely very close to the, the recipient of the letter. And he, he gives hearty thanks for all good counsel. Um, so presumably the minister is writing to Charles, you know, giving him instructions on how to pray and, you know, how to keep hope during this time of exile. He asks the minister to to still use the same old freedom, which I take to mean is um, the freedom of, of expression, I guess, that the minister obviously is not afraid to tell Charles what he thinks and how he, sh- how he should be leading his religious life, um, which is, is quite... It's quite a nice little um, way of writing to him. And he goes on um, to effectively say that he's having a hard time in exile, but he has very much in mind all his allies back in Britain who are effectively outlaws, who are having to suppress their royalist cause. Um, you know, he, he's very much aware that, that he's a king in exile. Um, so that the general tone is, is quite astonishing. Yeah. So obviously you know a fair amount about this time period in history. I don't so much as far as the kind of greater, wider picture of like European politics and stuff is is concerned. So you're obviously really quite excited by what you've dis- by what you discovered with these letters and realizing how it ties into other events. But why is this relevant to our collection? So the museums, galleries, Edinburgh's collections. What what's the significance there with how it ties into kind of Edinburgh and the, and the story of the the history that we know of Edinburgh? Uh, this letter is a, a missing link in our in our story. We we have a, a an amazing collection of manuscripts from this period. Some of them official documents, some of them personal letters and other sorts of documents that have all sorts of different functions. They start off with our copy of the National Covenant uh, on display at the mm. Museum of Edinburgh. When we reopen, uh, everybody can come back and, and see it. Yes, yeah, a lovely display there. <laughs> and this this is one of the most significant documents in British history. Um, it's the document, it started off as a petition um, addressed to Charles I, so Charles II's father, um, by a group of Scottish uh, churchmen and nobles who weren't happy with some of the changes Charles I was bringing into the church in Scotland. Um, it wasn't a revolutionary object. It was it was very much just a petition about reminding the king of his position and not to meddle too much with the church. 
it very quickly gathered momentum and became effectively a revolutionary document that started the the civil war. The, the civil war it's often known as the English Civil War, which is a gross gross misnomer. Um, I think the historians <laughs> prefer to call it the War of Three Kingdoms, uh, and in many ways. Even after the war had effectively ceased in England, there was still an awful lot of fighting going on in Scotland and Ireland. And the repercussions when Charles II came back to the throne in 1660, it all picked up again. Um, and there were reprisals. Anyone who had signed the covenant um, and therefore had been effectively implicit with the execution of Charles I had become outlawed. Um, and it's the Civil War continued all the way through to the 1680s, effectively. Um, so it really was a, a period of massive unrest, particularly in Scotland and Ireland. And it fills the gap in our collections in the way that we, in the sense, we have the, the covenant, uh, which started it all off. And throughout the rest of this period, we, we have letters, we have documents, we've got um, official documents from the various monarchs uh, and Oliver Cromwell. Um, we've got this astonishing letter uh, written by Oliver Cromwell to the people of Edinburgh shortly after um, one of the battles, the Battle of Dunbar which effectively stopped all the fighting in Scotland. Cromwell just beat everybody and, and, and that was it for the fighting. <laughs> I've never seen that letter, actually. I know that it exists, but I've, I've still never seen it. It's really, it's really, it's very interesting. It's, it's effectively saying to the people of Edinburgh, OK, we've just, you know, won a big battle out in Dunbar. We're coming to Edinburgh. We're coming your way. Um, but fear not. You know, you still have passage, um, freedom of passage in and out of the city. You can still hold your markets. Um, don't mess around too much or, you know, there will be repercussions. But similarly, if if any of my soldiers mess around too much, there will be repercussions too. So, you know, he's, he's basically saying, look, you know, we'll look after you. And, it, and if my soldiers get a bit rowdy, you know. I'm not I'm not afraid to use my authority on them and well I guess probably execute them knowing the time. So it's it's a great letter and we've got um in, into the 1680s uh period we've got a lot more about um the, the subsequent battles when Charles II was back on the throne. So so this letter really just fi fills that gap. Uh, we've got things from the 1640s, we've got things from the 1660s, but we don't have much from the royalist side during the time when Oliver Cromwell was in power. Yeah. And this is it. You know, um, the content isn't isn't massively um, astounding, but it, it's a very personal view of Charles II when he's in exile. Yeah. Are those the main kind of manuscripts that we should be thinking about here? Or is there anything else that's that's important that, that we should mention that's related to this wider subject? Uh, there's, there's another really cool document we've got. Of course there is. But uh, <laughs> we can't really talk about all of them, really, can we? It's It's more about the proclamation of Charles II as king so it's more about him it's uh, written on the 2nd of February 1649 which is three days after the execution of Charles I and it's a letter a memo if you like handwritten and signed by effectively all the leading nobles of the Scottish uh, gentry saying this is shocking um, I'm paraphrasing somewhat this is shocking we don't like the fact that our king's been executed and we instantly hereby proclaim his son Charles II king of England Scotland uh, Ireland and I think they're still referring to kings of Britain as kings of France as well for some ridiculously antiquated reason so and and this was long before Charles II was proclaimed king officially down in England um, three days later Scotland was very very quick to to proclaim him king 
Um, and it was the support from Scotland that, that kept the Royalist cause going after the execution of Charles I. Obviously, it didn't go well, and it all finished, uh, particularly with the battles of Dunbar and Worcester, which is when Charles then effectively went off into exile. Um, so th this this letter is 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 a following on from that. It's the sequel, if you like, of of what we've seen so far in the collections. So going back to the the letter itself from what you were saying we we're talking about how it, it ties into much wider history lots of really important figures in the time but i felt like there like you were just verging on saying but when you were talking about <laughs> it is there a but here i mean there often seems to be uh, the case that with our collections we'll find something we'll get really excited about about it and then we'll kind of have our fingers burnt slightly that sometimes and not everything is quite what it seems <laughs> is that the case here as well or am i am i picking up on it on it wrong you're just being pessimistic about our collections no you're, you're absolutely right <laughs> realistic, uh, I'm being realistic. realistic. <laughs> there, there is there is often a moment where, where we think we've got amazing things and then and then our dreams are dashed uh, but this you, you get across museums, collections across the world. You know, we, we're a repository of so much amazing stuff. Um, a lot of it, I mean, our collection started in the 1870s. Um, so stuff came to us. We have no idea. It wasn't recorded where it came from. So there is no way of knowing really much more about them. Uh, but in this case, yes, you're, you're right. There, there, there is a, a but. Um, I was always a little sceptical about this letter, I have to say. Um, there was something about it that just looked a bit wrong. Um, as a letter from the king, um, the, the actual quality of the paper looked a bit shoddy, even for the 1650s. Um, it didn't look like the kind of paper that a king would be using when he's at one of the most glittering courts in, in Europe. Um, there wasn't a seal on it, which is which is okay because it could have fallen off. But there wasn't evidence of any seal ever having been there. It hadn't been folded. It was torn quite badly in half um, and dog-eared, and the handwriting didn't really match up. Um, we've got obviously with all the other documents we've got from this period, we can we can match up the style of handwriting. There was actually quite a big difference between Scottish handwriting in the 17th century and say English handwriting. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, surprisingly so. Partly because a lot of official Scottish documents were still using old ways of spelling from from the Scots language, using Q U instead of W quite a lot, and a lot of it still looks like Scots. But even with these differences in in mind, um, it it just didn't look seventeenth century. It looked too legible, even for a king. Too legible. Too legible. It was too, was too, it, too too clear. Too <laughs> clear. Um, I mean, you, our, our copy of the National Covenant is 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 entirely legible, and that was written by lawyers. You know, some of the most educated men in the country, and it's mm -hmm. very hard to make out. This letter was we had relatively few problems trying to piece it together. So that made me think, okay, well, we'll ha we have to accept it as as it is. You know, we have to accept it at face value. This is a letter from Charles II. It looks a bit iffy. It might be a replica. Um, it might be a complete fabrication. But we have no information to suggest other than what we see, that it's a letter from Charles II. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important point that is so kind of prevalent in our work that, that especially the point that you made at the start saying that, you know, we have stuff in our collections that goes right back to into the into the 19th century and that we don't always know the full backstory. We have incomplete paperwork. We have to place a lot of trust in the integrity of the object and kind of maintain a degree of scepticism ab about it. 
and and try and maybe <laughs> yeah try and be just realistic about things <laughs> until we can find out for certain like these stories what one way or another and do you know kind of extra you know detective work to find out it's such an important part of our work that we place faith in the in the object and what we can ascertain from it just at face value whilst also thinking well actually what else do we know about the wider picture that we can that help us understand this better like you were saying about the handwriting the quality of the the paper whether it had a seal or how it was folded as well I'm not sure that people often think about um the manner in which a piece of paper or document has been um, or parchment or vellum or whatever has been folded and what that might tell us about the age or the use of a document but it's all it all ties into the kind of the wider picture about how we how we understand an object which I think often goes um, kind of unnoticed in our work I think. In, in many ways a lot of what we do is is forensics and detective work uh, and that, that's <laughs> yeah. why we love it isn't it you know. Um, yeah it's, it's the exciting part so often isn't it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the the, 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 the element of the, the chase and trying to find things out and sadly all, all too often um, you know these searches and quests might lead us to either a little bit of a disappointment or just lead us to to wild goose chase that, that results in in very little. Yeah. And you know sometimes we we find something that just resolves it all, and we are proved that our suspicions were wrong, and that what we have is uh, either a forgery or a replica or or just a wild goose chase that's sending us round and round in circles. Um, in this case, we did have the most astonishing discovery um, that just tied everything up, and this was the discovery in our stores. So in with the collection and it was actually given a museum object number and it had been catalogued and it was it was formally part of the collection. Another document, um, a letter uh, written in 1767, um, which was amazing that the, the handwriting matched up with the handwriting in the Charles II letter and even the which creases, we thought was from 16 which we thought was from 1652 yeah yeah and the the creases and even the tears and dog ears of the paper matched up um they, <laughs> they had obviously been sent together and stored for, for many years together so that pretty much proved that the Charles II letter was in some way well effectively a, a, a fake but it gets a little bit more complicated than that. And this is a, a wonderful example of how, how documents and, and museum objects can just take you in so many different directions. So whereas we thought we had a, a letter that was linked to the Civil War and Kings in Exile and the Restoration and all of this, we're actually now looking at a story that's more about the Scottish Enlightenment and mm-hmm. the movement of thinkers in Edinburgh around about the 16, 1760s. Because it turns out that this letter is from David Dalrymple to a friend of his, who is Horace Walpole, the son of Britain's first prime minister. And the letter itself is uh, an account of Dalrymple's latest attempts to try and get hold of recent works. He refers to the a catalogue of Smith's works. I'm not entirely sure what he is referring to. It. He might be talking about Adam Smith, the economist, who we know he was friends with. Mm-hmm. But the, the letter just goes on. It's, it's a rather rambling letter, but he finishes off by talking about how he had found a set of letters 
from Charles II in the Advocates Library in Edinburgh. And he talks about having transcribed this letter. So there you go. He's transcribed a letter by Charles II. And that's what we have with it. So he'd obviously just yeah. written this transcription and thought that, you know, writing to Horace Walpole, who's one of his um things was he was a collector of letters mm -hmm. uh, so he you know he, he's saying here you go Horace ha have a copy of the letter that I found and he does actually finish off by saying I think it may deserve a place in some future volume of original letters um, so, <laughs> or I need a place in a museum collection or a place in a museum collection so <laughs> here, here we are we are, we are doing Hor um, David Dalrymple's work by, by putting this letter back on the, the public eye <laughs> so that, that was just quite an amazing amazing moment to actually match the two together it was, yeah, great. Yeah. And that's a nice bit of visual sleuthing as well, like we were mentioning earlier, to, mm. to be able to connect them up through their kind of use and, and, and wear marks and things. So my question, I think, at this point for you, Nico, is if these letters, and certainly the, the first one, the old, what we thought was the older of the two, the Charles II letter, if they're not really quite what we thought they were, and it is a transcription, it's not an original letter by Charles II... Why should we care about that? What is important about about it in the transcription when it is at the original document? I think it's the the element that it is now about what people in Edinburgh in the seventeen sixties, which you know, I mean, it's a well documented era. There's an awful lot of of folk, you know, doing historical research. David Dalrymple wrote several books about the history of Scotland. Um, he went mm -hmm. on to become quite an important historian. This letter, 1767, it's actually quite early on in his uh, career as a historian. He was originally a, a lawyer mm -hmm. and then became, uh, well, he eventually became a, a, the, a politician, the, as well, a politician and, yeah, and a member of the nobility. But it kind of shows what historians were doing, you know, the fact that they were very much like historians today and, and what we're doing, you know, digging around in, in collections, finding stuff, getting excited, sharing knowledge, sharing <laughs> documents, uh, you know, oh, I found this really cool letter. Um, here, I've taken the trouble to transcribe it for you just for your own interest or, or put it on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing's changed, has it? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Uh, obviously, neither of us are members of the nobility, but uh, you know. Well, <laughs> there's something I haven't been telling you, Nico. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. That really helps answer that question. I think that's a really important thing for people who maybe aren't familiar with museum collections to be aware of is even if something isn't the original document, it's not to say that it isn't important for for what it is. Hmm. That's that's absolutely the case. But I mean, in, in terms of the 18th century links, I mean, Anna, you, you, you probably better off at the 18th century side of things. You've done a bit of, of research about Edinburgh at this time. What can you tell us about the period at this time? Yeah, I mean, this was such an important period in Edinburgh's history. It seemed to be just that everything was going on there. The Enlightenment, which, as you mentioned, was you know in full swing in the mid-18th century, it had such wide-ranging kind of influence, you know, as part of the Scottish Enlightenment, which went on in global influence. And Edinburgh was really absolutely kind of at the heart of that, especially um, right in the old town where so many of our museum venues are located. And I think this is one of the things that I'm always most awed by day to day from we're in our office and going between our venues, obviously in ordinary circumstances hmm. when they are open, unlike in lockdown just now you kind of forget that you're walking around the same sort of landscape as in which all these incredible minds and thinkers were going about their daily business and having chats and having conversations. There was just, it was such a melting pot of ideas. Um, everybody was rubbing shoulders with each other all throughout the old town as a real social mix bringing together all these different ideas and from different sort of specialisms as well, um, 
different you know kind of intellectual fields at the heart of all of this was kind of the the tavern scene in the mm-hmm. in the old town as well for for groups of friends and different people would be meeting to discuss their ideas we have got some fantastic objects in our collections from these as well um, especially bills from different taverns um in the old town so these are just like getting a receipt or something from your your pub or your restaurant mm-hmm. bill yeah, today sure. so they're giving a real insight into what people were eating and drinking at this time, which doesn't sound like very much, but actually it gives you a real understanding of what kind of the tastes were and what availability of different products there was in the old town. And one of my favourite ones is where, the, where there's um, a line on the bill for a, a broken glass as well. <laughs> you kind of think there's people there going out for a drink or for a meal and having a chat and getting together, but actually maybe things weren't always quite as genteel as it getting sounds. A bit rowdy. Things were getting a bit rowdy and <laughs> <laughs> glasses being broken. So it gives us to an idea of kind of the, the social hub that, that was going on in the old town at this time and the discoveries and the, the inventions. And we were talking about geology, the economy, the new development of the new town. You know, the science is just, just burgeoning at this time. So we've got things like that in our social history collection related to the taverns itself, but our wider collections as well, this all plays into it too. Our recognised applied art collections, with the silver especially, some of that was being made in Edinburgh at the time. Mm, yeah. um, and one of my favourite objects, which I think you really like this one as well, Nico, a painting called The Parliament Close and Public Characters uh, yeah. of Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. yeah now this is just an absolute corker of, of an image, which is available to see um, online. Um, and it really gives a feel for the, the community of the old town at the time. All the movers and the shakers um, are, are visible in it and lots of characters of the city that we know about that we can identify individually there as well. It's just an absolutely brilliant it is painting. It is a, a great we, painting, we could, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like we could dedicate a whole podcast just to talking about it, but that, that's, so that, that's for another time. <laughs> it is a great painting and it, it, it's, yeah. it shows, doesn't it, that Edinburgh, there was the phrase hotbed of genius, was that a phrase yeah. that was kicking around? And and yeah. I think it's a sort of um, un- unofficial subtitle for that painting as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And you can see, like, not just being able to recognise individual people who we know, you know, their influence and their legacy today, but even being able to see, kind of, get an idea for the tastes and the fashions of what people were wearing. And I mean, today, the the the, the spot that the painting is off today is is basically a car park now. The buildings yeah. remain the same, but it's otherwise you don't get the same sort of. Um, buzz of people being around there as you do as you can as you can sense from, from the painting funnily enough i was there i took my kids there just for a walk a couple of weeks ago to try and find something to do and i took them to the, the parliament square the back of st giles cathedral uh where actually it takes a full circle there's this rather glorious statue of none other than charles ii and there was nobody around and in many ways it's it's when it's Edinburgh is deserted when it's at its most evocative. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't have um, hordes of tourists. You don't have uh, all the twenty first century noise going on. And you could be standing. You know, the landscape's changed a little bit, but you could be standing in the middle of the eighteenth century, and it's yeah. it's just glorious, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah, you you don't have to suspend your your imagination too much to be able to kind of really get that that sense of it. It's mm. one of my favourite things about it, and I think it's easy to become complacent to that when you're working in the area every day but just yeah taking a, a step back to, to remind ourselves of we're effectively looking at the same spaces and the same landscape as all these people were you know a couple hundred years ago that the influence you know we're still we're still feeling and um david hume of course is just over the way from that statue of charles ii there at st giles he too, is so. indeed yes 
And the, the the thing with the, the taverns, though, I mean, it's it's odd to think you're talking about broken glass and and, and you know potential rowdiness. I mean, let's, you know, it could have just been an accidental breakage. Um, <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> uh, it's odd, odd to think of these guys um, in in the taverns. You know, we we think of names like I mean, Dal Dalrymple would have been very much among there with the likes of economist Adam Smith, David Hume, you've men mentioned he would have been there, um, Alan Ramsey, the painter, John Adam, the architect. You know, we think of these these great thinkers, we don't think of them in terms of sitting in taverns, we think of them as being in sort of nice, nice new town apartments with fancy furniture and, yeah. you know, being a bit, bit more refined and civilised. But actually, from what you're saying, not at all, they, they were in the taverns mixing with, with everybody else. I don't see why they, why they wouldn't have been. I mean, it just seemed to be where, where everything was happening. So, mm. I mean, it, there may well be some evidence out there to say that so-and-so never never went to any taverns in the old time <laughs> whatsoever, that they had, you know, different tastes. But um, I think it's a nice... I, I like the idea of kind of bringing these people back before all their achievements and their, you know, fame and, and fortune and everything, that they were still just ordinary people in the mm -hmm. old town and that they were all these people, no matter what they went on to, to achieve, that they were just effectively going equivalent today of just going out with, for a pint with your friends yeah. and kind of talking about ideas and, and you know, whatever the, the matter of the day was. I think there's something really human about that, which can get lost sometimes when we talk about, you know, royals and these all these big famous names and you know all the people we've been mentioning it's like a who's who of all the great and the good in Edinburgh at that time mm -hmm. but they were still people who would you know be going out and yeah enjoying a glass or something yeah, with, with their friends um, and for me I think that's that's really important I would really love to know more about this period in Edinburgh I am as anybody listening will be able to tell I am no expert by any means but I would really like to also know more about what was happening beyond just the realm of the wealthy white men that we've been mentioning as well I think that's one mm. thing that's that I find slightly problematic about it is that perhaps those histories at that period of time aren't anywhere near as as well known as surely there were people doing things beyond just the the list of the great and the good who were important and interesting as well but Indeed, I think yeah. those histories aren't always quite as well recorded from this period or certainly not traditionally anyway but all this ties in with wider kind of enlightened thinking I suppose that societies that were being founded at the time as well in Edinburgh I mean, before that, you're talking about the fact that the you know a lot of society is just not represented in history or indeed museum collections. Funnily enough, we we do have a couple of things that that give a snapshot into, admittedly, the wealthier side. But women at the time, we've got the, a glorious 18th century dress and matching silk shoes that we are currently getting conserved. Yeah. Uh, well, the dress at least is getting conserved, um, and that that gives an idea of again an individual person's life. We know who wore the dress and it came that the shoes came with patterns which are these little effectively little platforms that you, you would slip the shoes into so when you're walking around the extremely filthy dirty streets of the old town <laughs> your shoes are lifted <laughs> a little bit off the level of all the grime on the, on the streets yeah <laughs> um, but no you're asking about the societies I guess very much like today you know you've got clubs sports clubs musical groups orchestras choirs at the end of their rehearsals meetings practices they'll go to the pub and they always generally will go to the same pub. It's their pub. That was very much what was already happening in the in the 18th century. So you had the, the, the same group of guys would tend to go to the same tavern. And over time, this would form into a more established society. So, you know, people of, of one particular type of interest would hang out in, in one tavern. Other guys of another interest would hang around in another tavern. I think probably a lot of these, these guys 
probably members of multiple different groups because they had such wide-ranging interests. And over time, these societies developed. And, and we know that Dalrymple was a member of one of these societies called the Select Society, mm-hmm. uh, which started off more to look at uh, rhetoric and speaking and, you know, sort of public speaking and this kind of thing. But it, it basically became a, a talking shop for all sorts of areas, you know, sort of arts, art critique, history, the works. The, the National Library of Scotland has uh, the official starting list of members of the Select Society, and it's digitised, so you can go and see it. And, I mean, that, that really is a who's who of Scottish Enlightenment figures. They're all there. Hume, Ramsey, uh, Two Adams, Dalrymple is on there as well. So that really tells us who, who his mates were and who he was talking to. But it just, the letter we have from Dalrymple just shows that it it wasn't just within Edinburgh, you know, that he was communicating with... Walpole down in London, he was probably communicating with, you know, all, all sorts of thinkers, probably all over Europe. You know, it was, it was an international movement. Yeah, very well connected. So I think um, mentioning the societies there really brings us back to probably my favourite point in all of this, which is that it's the idea of people gathering together in these taverns and these, you know, meeting places and forming these societies and these different interest groups, that that is what played such an important role in this whole period in Edinburgh's history. And it's really only as a result of that that we've ended up having these letters in our collections. I think it's a really nice way to kind of think about it, that is the importance of people getting together and spending time together. Maybe that seems all the more important just now because we've just spent you know three four months in lockdown Mm -hmm. without really seeing people but I think it's a really nice nice idea to think about um in in the old town the importance of these places and people getting together for a glass of something and be sharing ideas and talking about things Thanks for listening to the Old Riggy Retold podcast. To find out more about our collections, head to edinburghmuseums.org.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at Edin Culture. <laughs>